Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering. I'm re-releasing the episodes I recorded last year under a different show name, and in this one I talk with writer Abraham Reisman. Abe writes about arts and culture, as well as Jewish topics, and sometimes he finds a way for the two to overlap. When we spoke in December 2019, he was working on a biography of Stan Lee, the Jewish Marvel comics icon. The book is titled True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, and it's slated for release in February 2021. In our conversation, we talked about Abe's journey as a writer, reclaiming Jewish history and culture that's been left behind or erased, and finding his way to becoming what he calls a born-again Jew. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Abraham Reisman. Now I sound like a Jewish stereotype and bragging yeah, about like, you're going to my, Florida. <laughs> I'm going to Florida in the winter from New York. <laughs> oh my God. Oh I my love God. That. I'm living this stereotype. I swear to God. It's so funny. Anyway. Um, well, thank you for having me for this. This is really exciting. Yes. Avery Smith, thank you so much for being on this podcast. And it's great uh, to connect with you again. Uh, it is terrific uh, for me as well. I'm, I'm, it's been a long time. Yes. So I know a little, a little bit about you because we went to high school together, but could you tell our, our audience a bit about yourself? Sure, of course. Um, so uh, my name is Abraham Reisman. I am from Oak Park, Illinois, uh, as you're familiar with, woo-woo. and uh, woo-woo. I <laughs> uh, went to Oak Park and River Forest High School after going to John Greenleaf Whittier. I'm only giving you this special stuff. You know, most people, when they interview me, don't get to hear about my childhood like this. But okay. uh, John Greenleaf Whittier Elementary School, Ralph Waldo Emerson Junior High, which no longer exists. It has nope. been replaced with Gwendolyn Brooks, which is a, a step forward for diversity. I think we can all get behind that. Yes. Um, then went to Oak Park and River Forest High School, which was uh, a wild experience for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, and it's weird. It's this. I was just talking to another OPRF grad, um, Daniel Kibblesmith, mm-hmm. who um, I'm friends with, and he's now a, a big time comedy writer. He writes for The Late Show with uh, Stephen Colbert. Oh, nice. And and he writes comics for for Marvel and. Um, I just messaged him the other day and was like, I don't, I don't know if this sounds weird to say, but like, how did we luck out to the point where like we are doing these things that like are, you know, very difficult to do that we might've dreamed of when we were kids. And he was like, I don't know, but like some kind of meteor hit Oak Park because yes. like there are, randomly, there are like all these people who come from this like totally random suburb of Chicago who end up like, you know, Cecily Strong of Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but I just find OPRF so fascinating. There are so many people who went there. But yes. uh, I went to OPRF, then I graduated. Uh, I went to Harvard. I studied this uh, interdisciplinary program um, that has a terrible name because it was invented by a French guy. So he didn't know that the words social studies sound inherently juvenile in mm. uh, the United States. So the name of the program is social studies. And uh, it makes it sound like I writing my thesis about like how firemen help our community or whatever. But uh, it was a great experience, learned a lot there and then went off to, uh, well, actually during the summers while I was in college, I um, interned in public radio. Uh, I used to, uh, I used to do stuff on radio stations in New York. So uh, then I graduated and went to work at the New York Sun which was uh, a newspaper that ceased existing three months after I started working there. Oh, great. So that was very convenient. Then I got a freelance gig writing copy for news anchors to read at New York One, which is this 24-hour cable news station, uh, TV station in, uh, in New York. And I did that for a little bit, then got bumped up to being a producer at New York One. And then I wanted to try something different, so I tried working in marketing as a copywriter. And uh, quickly found out that wasn't exactly for me, but it would work as a good nine to five while I did freelance journalism. So I got back into the journalism hustle, wrote for and made videos for a bunch of different outlets like Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the New Republic, uh, a lot of stuff for Vice. Vice was a a place that I did a lot of work, uh, where I did a lot of work. Um, And then... I basically got lucky and got tapped to uh, run the video department at New York Magazine. And so I went off to New York Mag and 
although I was in charge of video, I was also writing on the side for them. I started writing for Vulture, their, their arts and culture site, and was just lucky enough that I had people who believed in me and let me keep writing. And uh, eventually I just became a writer full time. I stopped doing the video stuff. Uh, this year I went part time because I was lucky enough to get a uh, book deal. Yeah, working on the book. It's a biography of Stan Lee, the Marvel Comics guy. Um, it's coming out uh, tentatively in fall 2020. Uh, we'll see if we can keep to that. I'm currently ahead of schedule on the book, so fingers crossed we'll be able to do a rollout in the fall. Not that anybody's going to be paying attention to anything else in the fall of 2020. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's gonna Quiet. we'll be the we'll be the sole headline, I'm sure, for every news outlet. Um, but uh, yeah, and who the hell knows what the future holds? When did you realize you wanted to be in journalism? Weirdly, not until college. I know mm -hmm. a lot of people talk about growing up and wanting to do that. Um, I it was not even something that occurred to me. I, I had a the closest thing to that was I adored, I just worshipped Roger Ebert. You know, I grew up mm -hmm. in the Chicagoland area, uh, so the Chicago Sun-Times was one of our local papers, and this was back in the era when local papers were still a thing, and I would just read avidly every Friday. I would just dig into every review or essay that Ebert wrote, and um, I just worshipped him. I thought he was so talented, and I loved the way he used the English language, and his mix of utilitarian and poetic uh, language it was just great. Uh, but I still didn't really imagine at that age that I would do what he does. Like that was not necessarily my goal. Um, instead, uh, I wanted to be an actor when I was a mm -hmm. kid. And I, when I got to college, I kind of gave up on that because I decided I hated actors and I uh, didn't want to have to deal with them. And theater people were just bothering me. In retrospect, that was very snobby of me. But at the time, I felt like, I'm done with the theater scene. And thought, you know, since it's college, you can just try something and, like, basically new job for no real effort. So I, I decided I would try out for the school paper for the Harvard Crimson and ended up writing for them and then becoming a, an editor and then an executive editor, um, uh, or rather a, a chair. I was the one of the two arts chairs for the arts section. And um, it wasn't really until college when I started doing that that I was like, oh, this is a thing. Like, I could do this, um, which was not something that had occurred to me before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I guess it started then, and then it sort of snowballed um, from there throughout my college years. By the, end, by the time I graduated, I was just – I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I don't think I applied for a single other kind of job outside of journalism. I, I just was all in by then, and um, I'm very lucky that I get to continue doing it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a little bit more about um, your background because sure. so this I'm still working out the kinks in this segment just to give you That's some background, fine. but um, I basically am interested in uh, the the crossover between creative people and also their Jewish background and. It, Sure. Whatever comes out of that. So bear with me if the questions are a little jarring. But no, um, it's fine. I'm I'm all yeah. for jarring questions. As a professional interviewer, that's something that I uh, aspire for. So aspire to. So go for it. Great. Okay. So uh, we went to the same high school, and I knew you were Jewish somehow, but we never really talked about it. And no. I don't think we went to the same synagogue or or were in the same Jewish friend circles. So I wasn't sure if you were practicing or what it yeah when you're growing up what what did how was the Jewish part question. of your life growing up it, so it's so weird I think about this all the time because spoiler alert uh, I sort of became this not exactly Balchuva but like a born again Jew to the extent that in the past few years I've just abruptly gone from zero to 60 in terms of being very involved in Jewish life and very interested in Jewish life. And that was not the case for me when I was growing up. But at the same time, I did get all of these basics, these building blocks that have allowed me to later in life, you know, sort of rejoin the fray. And I even rejoin, I was barely in it. It was just that I went to Hebrew school and like, it's funny on the one hand, it's just, you know, it's classic Judaism. It's a set of paradoxes, you know, on the one hand, um, I hated Hebrew school. Like I mm -hmm. could not stand it. It was so irritating. And that in and of itself is kind of a failure because on the part of, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, I, failure is a strong word. There were wonderful people running our Hebrew school program, but like it was, it, for me, 
it didn't connect at the time and didn't make me want to be a part of the Jewish community per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it really gave me these important foundation stones for being a Jew um, that I didn't appreciate at the time, really. But um, in subsequent stages of my life, I've gone, oh, wow, I would not know all of this or I wouldn't have known where to start if I hadn't gotten this education at an early age. So, you know, I went to Hebrew school starting when I was in grade school uh, every week, first Sundays and then Wednesdays when I got Which Hebrew school was it? It was at Oak Park Temple. Oak Park Temple. Really? And B'nai we went Abraham's to the same yeah. Hebrew school? I don't well, remember. I can't remember. Were we the same year? What oh, no. Year are you? You're right. That makes sense. You were a couple of years earlier than, older than that's me. Probably, that's probably okay. right. Yeah. So we were, we went to the same Hebrew school, but I, I don't remember us overlapping at all. But also yeah. I didn't really have, you know, Hebrew school just wasn't this important thing for me. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't find it interesting. It didn't pique my curiosity, but I learned the Aleph Bet, which is no right. small thing. Um, I learned, uh, you know, the, the most meaningful experience for me was becoming bar mitzvah. That Mm -hmm. was, that really did mean something to me, not on the level that I think it means to a lot of people who are more serious about their Jewish life growing up, but it still meant a lot to me. And part of that was, I just adored our cantor. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I thought Julie Ugin Green was just, you know, what a, what a, um, what a, 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 an amazing person. Uh, she was, she was such an influence on me and I loved learning these prayers with her and, and, you know, learning how to lane and all of that. And, um, so that, and then also, you know, it's just, you're at a vain age, like having a big party just for me. That was, mm-hmm. that was a lot of fun, you know, not to sound too crass about it. And, um, but after I became bar mitzvah, it was very steeply downhill. Like I, not in terms of like trauma or anything, but just in terms of my interest, you know, I, I, I think I sort of zombie walked through, uh, more Hebrew school, um, I think I must have until ninth grade. I think in ninth grade, I then decided this just isn't for me. And I had a bunch of other extracurricular stuff that was really important to me starting in high school, um, like theater and competitive public speaking and, and a bunch of stuff. And it was just like this, you know, Hebrew school is not, it says it wasn't meaningful to me. And my parents were like, you already became bar mitzvah. You don't need to get confirmed. It's fine. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of just disconnected from it then at that point. So yeah, I, I'm sure you were much more involved in Jewish life than I was. It was not a big factor for me. And yet at the same time, I can't fully fault the way I was taught because it did provide me with the base of the liturgy mm-hmm. and the ability to read the liturgy, even mm-hmm. if it's not even if it's just me sounding out the words, it's still, you know, there. And um, basic knowledge about Israel, although, of course, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of that was unbelievably skewed so or, or what a very flawed. But, but that said, the first time I went to Israel, you, I mean, you can make the argument that it at least accomplished its, its goals insofar as, like, I knew more about Israel, like, geographically. And that's, you know, in that, not even in terms of, like, history, but just, like, knowing about the various sites there and like the differences between Mm -hmm. them. And I was like, the first time I went there was in college. It wasn't on birthright, but it was another free trip, sort of part of the Jewish uh, gimme, gimme, gimme culture that we have right now. Um, I mean, I'm glad it happened, but um, you know, uh, I went and had some knowledge from Hebrew school there and that was, that was really useful. But um, yeah, no, I don't remember us interacting much. And that's probably just because like, my family was, I mean, we were sort of involved. My mom uh, was very involved in, increasingly involved in like temple life, like just committees and decision making and that sort of thing. Um, but that was sort of grown up stuff. That was not like a communal spiritual experience that the yeah. family was having. That was like she was off doing these important tasks, but like it wasn't necessarily a full family thing. And, um, you know, it really being Jewish is important to my family. Um, you know, my dad was born Jewish. My mom is a convert. And, um, you know, so with my dad, there's all the elements of family and like, he had some very positive Jewish experiences in the religious vein earlier in his life, which I only learned about recently. And that was fascinating to find out that we had that parallel, uh, however briefly. And my mom, you know, as somebody who chose Judaism, who's a Jew by choice, she's, um, very passionate about it. It's something very meaningful for her. But um, 
at the same time, growing up, we just didn't do that much that was sort of uniquely Jewish all that often. And because we came from this mixed family, like even the, it, it was complicated. Like we would go to have Christmas gatherings with my mom's side of the family. Mm. And so like, you know, there, there wasn't as the, the lines between Jew and Gentile were kind of blurred in the family, you know? Um, and that is not a bad thing, but it just can sometimes sort of put you in a place where you don't necessarily feel as comfortable with people who like only do Jewish stuff or whatever, you know, it's, it, I, it, as is true with everybody's relationship with Judaism, I have a lot of neuroses left over from the way it was handled in my childhood. It's, again, in short, care a lot about Judaism, but growing up, we just didn't do that much in the vein of religion. Oh, and I, sorry, one last thing. I went to one summer of Jewish summer camp. One oh, summer. Okay. It did not go well. It was not a success at all. I, I went to Osrui, the old right. Sang Ruby Union Institute, as you're familiar with, um, in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. I went in their arts program, which was in its first year, or maybe it was its second year, but they were definitely still working out the kinks of the arts program. And it was horrible, mainly because I was such a little dweeb. Like, I wanted to go to sleep every night at Lights <laughs> Out and, like, get eight hours of sleep so I could be ready to, be, like, face the day the next day. This was, like, an obsession of mine when I was growing up. I needed to get, like, a maximal amount of sleep every night or I got, like, cranky. And, ugh, I was just such a little, like, you know, no one wanted to deal with me. It was, all the kids were, like, this guy sucks and is trying to harsh our mellow. So I had like no friends. I had like mild success in the talent show. But other than that, it was just this like nightmare. And I, I like would write my parents these letters, like, you know, bring me home. This is awful. I hate it here. <laughs> and so that was my last experience with Jewish camp. We, we did that one summer and Asrui was kind of the main one that was available. So I was like, screw that. I don't want to go do that again. So, um, you know, I, I kind of, I know Jewish summer camp is kind of a mixed bag for a lot of people, but there are times when I am very jealous that other people got to have that sort of Jewish communal experience. Um, same with like Jewish day school. I often am jealous of people who got a deeper Jewish education growing up than I did. Yes. I, I feel like I had a really similar experience. I don't want oh, really? to talk too much about me, but I, we, no, please. Well, I didn't have my, both of my parents were Jewish and they're from New York. So I think I had, I was mm. steeped more in the Jewish culture just by having family to visit there. But yeah, we had, I had Sunday school, always thought it was a drag. Yeah. I always thought like always was not really sure I was learning what I was supposed to be learning. Did a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, was happy with that and then was done. But I think what kind of stayed with me is I ended up in this friends group of other oh, Jews yeah. or people, who, especially a lot of my friends were people who had Jewish backgrounds, but did not have Sunday school. So I, oh, could, I was able to see it from their point of view as something oh, cool and interesting yeah. without the brainwashing that I was getting. But now my husband is going through a bar, uh, like an adult bar mitzvah class. Oh, cool. And I'm realizing like, oh, I like, I can sing the Olive Bet. He can't. Yeah. Like that is actually a worthwhile skill. It's useful. I, I know. I got that. Yeah. There's a lot. I know. There's a lot of like, you know, since I've gotten involved in this world, I've learned a lot. And, you know, I wrote a profile a few, uh, you know, like almost two years ago of Rick Jacobs, the head of Reform Judaism in America, uh, in North America. And um, there's a lot of hand wringing in the reform movement about like, you know, we screwed up the last time with this last generation when it came to Hebrew school, like all of the 20 and 30 somethings don't care about Judaism. We messed up. And like, to a certain extent, I get it. And that's very much the case. But also, I don't know, I always want to sort of like pat somebody on the back when they're talking about that and be like, I learned the Aleph bet. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you did a baseline level, like, good thing. Yeah. You know, like that, that's something that's worth passing on from Lador Vador, you know, as, right. as it were. And you, you all did that. So at least there's that. That's not enough, but it's, it's something. Yeah, I agree. So when did you first realize you were a minority? That's a great question. Um, I don't know, but growing up in Oak Park, I never really felt like a minority, mm -hmm. like being Jewish seemed being Jewish was this kind of abstract thing for me, even though we were, like I said, you know, involved. 
um, and I was becoming bar mitzvah and everything, it felt like religious life as opposed to sort of something that was essential to who I was. I'm, I mean, Oak Park, as you know, is an extremely fascinating and very um, troubled suburb on some levels because it's this grand social experiment since the 60s and 70s to uh, be a model of integration. Um, and that means that the population is largely, um, you know, the question is not who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. It's just all the Jews, not all the Jews, but a lot of the Jews happen to be white there. It's a, you know, Ashkenazi community for the most part when it comes to the, the people who are Jewish there. And so you just sort of get lumped in as white. Like that's, at least that was my experience. That that, that was more of the dividing line was, you know, who's white and who's black. And um, the Jewish component just sort of felt like, well, that's my religion. Like, mm -hmm. it wasn't something about, like, I didn't think of it so much as an ethnicity. So thinking about it as a religion, because religion wasn't a, a factor that people talked about all that much where we came up, you know, it was a, not the most devo devout and pious town in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I just didn't think about even being a religious minority. I mean, I, obviously I knew I was on some level, but it didn't really, like, strike me as something worthy of talking about or losing sleep over. I never felt threatened. Nobody like, you know, called me a, a slur that people reserve for Jews. You know, it, it just, it never felt that way. Did you feel that way in Oak Park? I had a, a weird thing where, because I look, because of my hair, I look yeah. non-white to some people. So even in preschool, folks oh. were asking me what my background was. But I didn't, because Oak Park did such a good job of like, we're going to celebrate everyone. I never yeah. felt like a minority until I saw a graph of the world religions in mm, like yes. eighth grade social studies. And yeah. Jews were like 0.6%. And I was like, holy How is that crap. possible? Yeah, yeah, I thought it was half and half or something yeah, like right, that. Right, right. I know what you mean. Yeah, we were so small. Yeah. That's really interesting. I guess I probably had that moment at some point. I don't think I thought we were half and half, but like still, you know, I assumed we were a much bigger percentage of the global population. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't remember that ever really striking me. I must have learned that at some point and been surprised, but it didn't like scare me or, right. you know, change my perspective on the world. It was just, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I guess we're not as, as great in number as the Bible would have implied, but, you mm -hmm. know, um, it's uh oh man, I, sorry. You're just you're making me think about all the like weirdness of how um how far I've come and how much mm -hmm. I care about being Jewish. No one ever talks to me about this stuff. I'm really like flattered that you called me to, okay. to chat because I I hardly ever get to ramble about this sort of thing. But um you know I I'm recently thinking about writing uh you know I just started this newsletter. Um, because that's what you have to do these days, apparently, mm -hmm. uh, if you're trying to be a writer. And so uh, I'm trying to include original content, and whether that's interviews or essays or reported pieces or whatever. And um, so I think this, around the end of the year, I'm going to try to write an essay about um, uh, thinking back on my Christmases as a Jew. Ooh. And like what what, I don't know exactly what my point is, but I'm sure it's one of those things where it'll be like therapy. Like I'll start writing it and mm -hmm. all of a sudden I'll realize what I want to say about it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, my Jewish background was, you know, colored by the fact that no pun intended that like, you know, ethnically I was half wasp, mm -hmm. you know, um, that was not, I thought of myself first and foremost as white. And I'm sure part of that was because half of my background was unambiguously white. Um, you know, Scots, Irish, you know, stock that's been in, in America for centuries. And then the other side, it, it's more complicated, but I just, my dad's side was like relatively integrated or not, you know, um, assimilated uh, to a certain extent. They were still proud of being Jewish and like identified as Jewish, but like, you know, it, you would not have, they would, they were as, as um, it says in uh, Call Me By Your Name, they were Jews of discretion. Um, as Timothy Chalamet. Did you see? Um, I Gone have not Names? seen it yet. No. Oh, it's what a really good Jewish mean? movie. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about what does Jews of discretion mean? Oh, just sort of like you're Jewish and you know you're Jewish and you're not um, ashamed of that, but you also um, kind of are and like don't make a big deal out of it. So the idea mm -hmm. is like you 
maybe you wear a Magen David uh, necklace, but you always make sure that it's covered up when you're wearing whatever shirt you're wearing, you know, mm -hmm. like this sort of like internal pride. It's a little bit of a think Yiddish talk British type thing, you know, mm -hmm. which was a phrase that my grandfather said a lot. So I guess that there's something to that. Yeah, where was your dad's side of the family from? Do you know from my yeah, of course. Well, <laughs> it depends on how far back you want to go. Um, so my dad is from Providence, Rhode Island, um, and his father was from Chelsea, Massachusetts, but moved to Providence. And uh, my grandfather's father was from somewhere, and I don't know where that is because mm. my genealogical research keeps hitting these dead ends, um, and. I, I'm trying to, the big holy grail, if I'm going to mix my religious metaphors, for me is finding out literally just where we're from. Mm -hmm. I don't even, you know, it probably doesn't exist anymore because it was Eastern Europe um, and they were Jews. So wherever it is, there's a good chance that like I wouldn't be able to go to visit, you know, like there wouldn't be anything to see, but I still just want to know. It feels like it's worth honoring and, and being a part of. And every time on all the forms I've been able to find, every time one of uh, the members of the generations that came over uh, to Boston from Eastern Europe, whenever they were asked uh, what their city or town of origin was, I kid you not, they would write down Russia, just like, you know, <laughs> narrowing it down circa 1897, you know, <laughs> like a large geographical area. And so it's like, what, Vladivostok? Like, where are we talking? And um, so I don't know. Oh, wow. the, the, oral, the oral tradition is people said um, Ukraine. But um, no one knows what the origin of that bit of oral tidbit is, you know, mm -hmm. um, like it could be completely wrong. Um, and I don't know. I'm thinking about, you know, I just hired a professional genealogist to help oh. me out with some research for my book um, because I had done a lot of genealogical research into Stan, but I realized at a certain point, I was like, you know what, there are, this is a skill in and of itself that you develop over a long period of time and I am new to it. So I'm going to just use some of my advance money and like hire a researcher who is a professional genealogist, like knows where to look and how to look. And it turned out to be really useful. And this, this person who's definitely getting a big thank you in the, um, in the acknowledgements uh, was great. And it's made me realize, you know what, it might be time to just pony up and like, pay out of my pocket for like help from a genealogist when it comes to my own family, because I'd love to know this stuff. And I just mm -hmm. don't like, I do not know virtually anything about the family going back before when they arrived in on angel Island in, uh, in the Boston Harbor. Like it was just, and also it's this reminder that like the generations that came over a lot of times they didn't want to talk about what happened over there. Mm -hmm. Like it was not pleasant memories. This was not, you know, um, I mean, it wasn't Fiddler on the Roof, you know, right. like it right. was not this like joyous little hamlet that, you know, uh, had to deal with some bad stuff. So they left. It was like every day sucked. I mean, that's I'm exaggerating, but like it was you're living as this um, horrifically oppressed minority population in authoritarian settings. You know, it, it's why would you want to talk and living like, you know, at subsistence level, um, which I'm, you know, I'm guessing that was my family. I don't think we were Rothschilds, you know, the, there's, there's no evidence of us having any kind of money. You just think like, why would you want to talk about that? Mm -hmm. Like, why would you want to be nostalgic for that when you could just live your life in America and focus on that? Like I did an oral history with my great uncle who's a wonderful man. And his dad was, you know, someone who came over, he was you know about six years old, but his dad came over, um, my great grandfather from wherever. And while I was doing the oral history, I just asked my great uncle, like, so did your dad ever tell you where he was born? And he was like, no, no, mm. just never, never came up. The entirety of the time that my great uncle knew his father, his father never even told him where he was born. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's and not now that we're all left wondering. Yeah, and it's not mm -hmm. that uncommon. Like, I remember I was banging my head against the wall a few years ago with this genealogical research. When I reached out to a friend's dad, who's a professor of um, Eastern European Jewish studies um, at Stanford and just really smart guy. And I said, like, what am I doing wrong? Like, and he said, you're not doing anything wrong. You have to understand a large portion 
of the Eastern European Jewish immigrants who came over at the end of the 19th century and then into the you know, first decade of the 20th, these were people who did not view Eastern Europe as like their homeland, mm-hmm. you know? Like the Italians and Irish, which were the other generally large populations that were coming over in that period, you know, again, this is a generalization, but a lot of them, the idea was there was national feeling towards um, Italy or Ireland. And it was like, this is where my heart belongs, or like, I'll come back to you or whatever. And for the Jews coming across from Eastern Europe, there was no feeling of loyalty or nostalgia for the most part. And so he was like, yeah, a lot of them didn't want to talk about it. And it's, that's not your fault. That's just, you know, for whatever reason, that was something that they didn't want to discuss. Yeah. I feel like we had a collective, that generation had a collective decision to just cut off all memory of where they were before. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was even more confusing growing up when, you know, we had like, where are you from days or something, or someone would ask me and I would say, oh yeah, mom and dad, like, where are we from? And they were like, uh, Eastern Europe somewhere. We don't know the town. You know, my fear, I think what my mom keeps saying is when she asked her mom what happened to family from Russia or Eastern Europe, she would just say, well, they all died. And that's it. Like end of discussion. There wasn't like, why even go back and talk about um, who they were or because it's, it's, they were almost like, well, that's done. There's nothing left to look into. There's nothing to look into. I know I get, but then every once in a while you'll get really jealous of someone who like, came from like a line of rabbis so there's like records of like who the members of this rabbinic dynasty were and like where they lived or like people who had um you know gone secular in eastern europe like you know and were like writing memoirs and stuff like that that you get jealous of the the jews who can boast about that but at the same time you know you kind of just have to accept that like you know, maybe they, they had every right to not want to talk about this traumatic event that was growing up in Eastern Europe mm-hmm. as a Jew, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I'm definitely wondering, like, what have, what have we lost in that? Oh, so uh, much. Oh, my God. Right? Like, if you look at other cultures who have made it a priority to pass down cultural traditions like language, yeah. music, dance, food, or whatever, and, and stories we we worked so hard to assimilate that it's that it you just don't know where we're from you know like identity wise and really? then we we have to kind of recreate these myths or like we have to start looking even older like okay well we're from israel and yeah. you know we have a whole religion yes. with an oral tradition but it, it's not the same as knowing well this is Your what my great grandparents yeah. did every day or what they ate oh every day. my friend you are you are singing my language you're singing my song speaking yeah. my language that is exactly how i think about it. i mean this is one of the reasons why i'm such a big michael shabon fan like mm-hmm. this you know, yes. he's somebody who, similarly to you and I, spends a lot of time thinking about the tragedy of the lost Jewish past and the fact that, like, there is so much that goes undiscussed among Jewish populations. Now, of course, that's not just unique to the Jews. There are any number of cultures where there's been lots of loss over years. Um, uh, but to talk about it in a specifically Jewish context is something that really resonates with me. I mean, that's that's the whole magic of the Yiddish policemen's union, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's imagining this other world where Yiddish didn't die, where Yiddish Gite didn't die, where, um, you know, I mean, the part that makes it controversial is like where there is no state of Israel to act as kind of mm-hmm. a placeholder for religious right. or cultural identity, which, you know, God bless the boomers. They made a real decision in 1967 that like Israel was going to replace religion for Jews. And, you know, it's fascinating to read this novel that imagines, well, what if that didn't happen? And mm-hmm. how would people think about civic life? How would they think about loyalty? Like, I I have my issues with the third act of that book, but um, just in terms of plot, but uh, I adore that novel. And you're totally getting at something that I think is a bedrock reason of why I like it and other stuff that people like Shabon have talked about. Because, yeah, right. I mean, like, this is... And you're seeing now this real effort to reclaim a lot of that, at least in certain circles. You know, I mean, I just have to wonder how much of this is me being in a bubble by being in this like radical progressive New York milieu. But, um, you know, the big trend these days is a lot of young Jews on the left, of which there are many because Jews trend left in general, um, 
really trying to rediscover like Bundism, right? Like mm -hmm. going, you know, what are the alternative pasts? Like we've been told this one narrative, um, you know, our generation, the people in their 20s and 30s, the millennials, we've been told this one story that is like ancient history right. up until maybe 70 AD and then kind of skipping everything yes. until vague notion of bad times in Europe followed by, like, not with any specificity, followed by detailed history of World War II and the Shoah, and then followed by the establishment of the State of Israel, and then, like, now we're in this perfect world, right. you know? And it's, and like, it's like, what happened in between? What and happened in between? Yeah. I mean, this mm -hmm. is one of the things I really like about Workers' Circle, you know, formerly Workmen's Circle. Mm -hmm. they, they have this real commitment to going, like, look, you can't just talk about Yiddish and the culture that's surrounded it for Ashkenazi Jews um, as something that died. You have to look at it as something that lived for a thousand years. You yes. know? Like, that's insane. Right. The fact that we talk about, you know, again, I, I'm not expressing a political viewpoint here, but it's fascinating the degree to which we talk about Israel versus something that has only existed for 71 years versus talking about this heritage that, um, you know, only died out a few decades ago, but that spanned for a millennium. Like right. we just, we have this no sense of proportion when it comes to talking about Jewish identity and history. And that can really be frustrating. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes to all of that. I, I'm, I'm glad we're yes. on the same page here. I feel mm -hmm. like, but the thing is like, Clarissa, we're not alone. Like being, I was just at a party the other night, a release party for an issue of Jewish Currents. I don't know if you read Jewish yep. Currents, mm -hmm. but yeah. So big Jewish Currents fan. I think it's a fantastic publication and they throw great parties. And I was there and I'm like, you know, this is not a, a crowd of tens of thousands but like there's more than a few minions and it's like all people who are feeling the stuff that you and I are feeling in this conversation. Like they were all people in their twenties and thirties for the most part. They were all people who felt like they'd been really failed by their um, Judaism and Jewishness uh, the, that they received from their parents. And there's a lot of wondering about the Jewish past and mm. about Yiddish and not just that though. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be Ashkenormative as they say. Right. This is true with a lot of uh, Sephardi Mizrahi Jews as well. There's this sense of like, there has been this narrative for the past couple of decades that has really erased a lot of the rich, beautiful history of Middle Eastern Jewry, you know, mm -hmm. like that's something, I mean, and I don't know anything about that because let me tell you, we did not talk about that growing up. Like I got no information about Jewry outside of, you know, the ancient past followed by, you know, Ashkenazi stuff. And it's, there's so much rich beauty in all of these, these episodes in Jewish history and all these movements in Jewish culture. And yet we just aren't talking about them enough. And yes. I feel like there's a lot that we would be able to wreck with if we were able to look clear eyed at the past and go, this is part of who we are. And we just don't do that. It's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That, 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 that right there in a nutshell is exactly the reason I've started this podcast. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah, especially being out on the West Coast right now. I think it, yeah. it really highlighted for me the gap of these conversations because there aren't even as many other Jews around to have these conversations yeah. with. And those are exactly the questions I want to have is like, what happened? Where did we come from? How has that affected us now? You know, what is, what is the intergenerational trauma done to us? What are people doing to ensure yeah. that we have a culture going forward that is more than just like one note Zionism and Holocaust remembrance? What are and, we going to do And this do to vague sure? idea, and this vague yeah. idea of like soup kitchen tikkun olam. You right, know, exactly. Like, like there's nothing wrong with going to a soup kitchen, but as like Peter Beinart has pointed out, like that's not Judaism. Like you're doing right. that because you're, it's a good thing to do, but you're not doing it because like it's a Jewish thing. You're doing it because it's like a good thing to do as a citizen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, I find you're completely right about all of this. And it's something that really bugs me because there's so much, you know, one of the other things that a lot of these people in this generation are doing is trying to re, re, uh, uh, what's the word? Question our assumptions. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the things we were taught since day one um, you know, since Brit Mila, what have we been taught? And like, how do we 
question everything and say, well, was this, uh, even if you don't call it a lie, you know, even if you call it just a misunderstanding or whatever, right. like what was not true from when I was taught growing up? And, you know, for me, a lot of that ends up being, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about Israel, obviously, but there's even more stuff about just religious practice. Mm -hmm. Because one thing I really find frustrating, and I'll tell this to any reform rabbi or administrator, one thing that I find really frustrating about the reform movement is it often doesn't tell you what it's not telling you. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't say, hey, we've determined that doing the Shemona Esrei isn't important and but you should know what the Shemona Esrei was or is, you know, and that like that's been the core of Jewish liturgy for centuries. Um, even though we've decided that you don't have to do it, it's worth knowing about. But they don't do that. Like you just learn that there's something called the Amida right. or the Amidah and you don't do anything during it. You just like everything's quiet for a couple of minutes for no particular reason. And then everyone's praying again. And you're like, all right, I guess that was a thing. What do I know? And that's really frustrating for me. I often look back and have to question a lot or, or the idea of like tikkun olam. Like, again, I'm all for doing good works, but the idea of that being like a bedrock part of religiosity and Judaism is just not real. You know, it's like there are other things that are such higher priorities in the way Judaism has traditionally been organized. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to just, even with the good things like tikkun olam, ask the questions and figure out where they're coming from so you can understand where you're coming from, you know? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I can tell this is the beginning of a good friendship oh, here, Clarissa. Oh, We're good. clearly on the same page. I definitely page. want to talk to you more about all of this. Yeah, um, no, likewise. I I, again, I have very few people who I end up having this level of a conversation with about, I mean, I have a lot of Jewish friends, so we end up talking about Jewish stuff, but it's usually right. like, can you believe what happened last week? And, you know, yes. did you how, see how Twitter? We, did you see Twitter? How, you know, when will everything stop being so bad? You yeah. know, that, especially because a lot of my friends are Jewish journalists. And oh, so, you, you know, one of my dearest, hard. it's, oh man, well, it's, it's worse for some of them because I'm, a, I'm Jewish and a journalist and I write about Jewish yes. stuff occasionally, but I'm not like at a Jewish publication. So like I have friends at the forward or the Jewish week or whatever. And like, they, oh my God, the amount of like staring into the abyss they have to do all the time of just like how bad it is for minority populations in this country right now. Right. <laughs> like, it's just, I don't know how they do it. Like, it's just staring at the sun all day. And um, anyway, uh, so I'm glad that we're getting to have this conversation because usually Me it's too. much more present tense. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about that because you write about pop culture as and well as Jewish issues stuff. on Jewish stuff. It's totally random, like they, I know. Do you feel like you're using a different part of your brain or they are no, speaking to a completely I different don't. audience? Okay. It's just the arts and culture, a little bit of a different audience, but there's a lot of overlap there. I mean, there's not like I have to tell you, you mm -hmm. know, the world of popular culture and entertainment and the arts in America, especially, and the world of American Jewry, uh, there's a lot of overlap there. Yes. So, you know, my book being a good example, Stan was was Jewish, although he completely walked away from Jewishness and Jewish and Judaism as a religion. Um, he was Jewish, and his background as a Jew, I argue, is fundamental to understanding who he was, and especially what his family went through. I won't spoiler anything, but right. like, there's a very traumatic Jewish history, uh, Romanian Jewish history that. Um, and let's stop for just a second. Stanley was a major. Uh, oh, sorry. Mover and shaker at Marvel Comics. At Marvel Comics, yeah. Okay. It's it's a little hard to describe exactly. I mean, while being close to the truth, it's hard to use specific terms like creator or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that's a whole complicated discussion. But uh, it's the reason I wrote a book. There's a lot to fill out about talking about that. But he was definitely he was the the main reason you know what Marvel Comics is. He was a writer and editor there who was also their chief promoter and he's in all, he had cameos and all these Marvel movies, the superhero movies, the Avengers and all that. Um, but, uh, he died last year and I was, um, asked by Penguin Random House to write a biography soon after that. Um, but anyway, the book, excuse me, plays up a lot of Jewish angles because he was Jewish and his, his parents were Romanian Jewish refugees and their specific, I'll give away one tidbit. Okay. Um, this will be the first book, uh, the first English language publication 
to uh, tell the story of the 1890 Bodishan Romania pogrom uh, in Bodishan, uh, which was a city in Eastern Romania. There's this pogrom that um, uh, Stan's father lived through when he was five years old that um, I only figured out that that was the case by just doing some math, finding out when he was born, and then reading this separate set of tomes about Romanian Jewry. Uh, one of them mentioned that there was a, a, some kind of anti-Jewish activity in um, Bodishan, which was this predominantly Jewish city in Eastern Romania and Moldavia that um, Stan's uh, father lived in and his parents lived in. So he was five years old when this whatever it was happened and I could not find any information about it in English. And I looked far and wide and I reached out to experts and they didn't necessarily know. And then um, I was just like, screw it. Again, there's another case of like, I'm gonna use some advance money to do something I don't know how to do. I hired a Romanian researcher. I was like, can Whoa. you? Well, cause I can't read Romanian. So like, yeah. that's something where I feel comfortable giving up and just paying somebody to do it because it's like, otherwise it's not gonna get done. Like I can't, I can't read Romanian. I don't know where to look. Um, so I hired a Romanian researcher, a really wonderful person. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know her that well, but she was great to work with. And she uh, uncovered all this information from a couple of Romanian sources about this riot, this anti-Jewish riot that happened in 1890. And that's now, at least in this current draft, what I opened chapter one with. Because I feel like you can't get a Jew unless you get I mean, again, this is not exclusive to Jews, obviously, mm -hmm. but you, I, I can say it is a part of Jews, um, Jewish life. You cannot be a Jew and understand yourself or, under, or understand uh, another Jewish person if you don't understand the trauma that is in the very recent past. Mm -hmm. Like, really bad shit happened not that long ago. And that stuff carries over and it plays into the way our institutions are set up. It plays into our communal mindset. And for someone like Stan, even though he wasn't a part of the institutions of the community, it played a lot into, I think, you know, without being too much of an armchair psychoanalyst, how he ended up being formed as a personality. Um, and I'll leave it to people reading the book to find out exactly how that, uh, what kind of influence I think it had, but um, it's, it's crucial to understand and to like reclaim that past. Mm -hmm. Why did you pick Stan Lee as someone oh, right, to write right. about? Oh, and I realized I didn't answer your question. Is it different oh, yeah. parts of my brain? Yeah. Not really. It's mostly, um, it's mostly just my reporting brain and it just happens to be different topics. I mean, I write in the same way. I do reporting in the same way. I mean, prior to writing about arts and culture, that's what I like was able to become mildly known for. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, I'd spent years writing like city metropolitan reporting mm -hmm. and, um, you know, writing about like, I was writing about tech for a while for um, the Boston Globe and a couple of other places. I was making documentary films. Like I, I, I do all kinds of weird stuff. So just the fact that people only found out about me when I was writing about arts and culture doesn't mean that's like my default mode. Mm. Um, but to answer your question, um, your other question, uh, I wrote a profile of Stan that was published in 2016 in, at Vulture, uh, New York Magazine. And it did really well. Um, and I later found out, and I won't give details, but it caused problems for Stan, um, hmm. which is not my intention. But you'll have to read the book to find out what I'm talking about with that. Um, but I, I published it in 2016. It did well. And then um, when Stan died last year, November, uh, November of 2018, um, the, either the day of or the next day, an editor at Penguin Random House reached out um, about me writing a biography, which is a little morbid, but I guess that's what happens when people of note pass away. Um, you know, there's kind of a scramble to be the first now definitive biography. Mm. So we were very lucky we got there in time and uh, now I'm working on it. But I didn't actually pitch the book is the point. The, they came to me, which was very flattering. Okay. It was of course after years of me trying to get books made and completely failing. Mm -hmm. uh, so then when I stopped trying, somebody else asked me and I guess that's how it works in this world. But, right. um, but uh, yeah, so I didn't pick the book, the book picked me. Do you feel like you're inspired by Stanley? Is he someone whose work is important um, to you? 
I'd rather sort of balk on that question. I want yeah. to leave it ambiguous for the okay. reader what my relationship is with Stan's work. Because one thing that's been a little frustrating about the existing scholarship on Stan is there have been multiple biographies written of him. But even when they're written by very talented writers, they generally have been people who are friends or profound admirers of Stan. Hmm. Um, there are no fewer than three biographies that have been written by people who were either close friends with him or, or, you know, decent friends with him, but definitely friends with him or um, somebody who's like an avowed super fan. So I'd rather have the reader kind of be a little in the dark about my exact feelings about him. Right. Um, just so you don't get clouded by who I, you know, by any of that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And the, the reason I ask is because just going back to what we were saying about having kind of a, a lack of Jewish culture and a feeling of pride of where you come from. I found myself um, really looking for Jewish role models in the arts yeah. and culture world. And um, one of the things that I really love about your writing, especially when, because you write about pop culture and how it overlaps with Jewish culture is every so often you'll write about someone or a piece of work that that's a mainstream uh well-known piece of arts and culture that also has someone Jewish or Jewish influence. Yeah. And it really makes me feel seen. So like, for example, was um, I'm thinking specifically about the article you wrote in Vulture after David Berman's death. Yeah. Which, oh yeah. David Berman, so born, another born, I, I felt, I mean, that was really hard for everybody. And yeah. I loved him very much as a musician. I never met him or talked to him, but he was, he was somebody very important to me. And he was another born again Jew. That was somebody I really mm. related to. He was somebody who, similarly to me, and I don't want to get into detail, but like had a hard time. And then around the end of that hard time, I uh, was like, well, what if I explored Judaism? What if that was something that I tried to embrace? And in both of our cases, it really helped. Unfortunately, I, you know, with David, it, it was still very hard for him. Um, but there is this amazing documentary that was made about his first trip to Israel um, called uh, Rebel Jew, which is also the name of a song by him. And um, it's, it's wonderful. It's a very like low key, lo-fi, chill documentary. It's just a lot of fun to watch to see these interesting, likable people um, in this fascinating place. But the last scene is him at the Kotel and this um, uh, Hasid comes over to him. And I later, um, uh, a friend of mine who's, who's a Chabadnik watched it and was like, not one of ours. Like he, he wasn't not proud of it or anything, but he was like, I know the setup over there. I think that guy's Satmar. So um, whatever it is, a, a Hasid be Satmar Lubavitcher um, comes over to David and offers to help him uh, daven. And so he walks him through some liturgy and he's doing, um, he's reading the Shema and its blessings in English because he doesn't really know mm. Hebrew. So he's reading the Shema and its blessings in English and he just starts breaking down. Like he cannot get through the whole thing without like just falling into these weeps and sobs. And I mean, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. It's a very powerful thing to watch. I mean, the camera's right up close there too. And you just see him reading from this piece of paper. And as he gets to, um, I can't remember what section it was. I don't want to get it wrong. You can see it in my article, but he gets around the end and just starts losing it. And I know that feel, bro, you know, <laughs> like, I, know I know what that's like. So when he, when he died, I was like tweeting about that. It was a classic situation that happens in media in 2019. I was tweeting about it. And then one of my editors was like, you know, you're tweeting about this. Do you want to actually write about it? Yeah. Um, that's a dirty secret. That is very often how articles materialize these days. Um, but uh, I was like, sure. So I wrote that thing and well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because it was, um, you know, he meant a lot to me. His music going back to when I was young was something that was very important. And um, uh, I, it was a privilege to be able to talk about his Jewish side. I, I then of course got one upped by Jewish currents, which wrote that amazing, mm -hmm. you know, Kaddish for David Berman. That was great and that yes i put me to shame but i was glad that i got the opportunity to say what i said so thank you for reading that yeah so you describe yourself as born again jewish <laughs> yeah. i'm not sure i know exactly what that means what was it like when you first decided you wanted to 
to become more, more religious involved. or yeah. more involved in Judaism. Yeah, I mean, I, it was, you know, I'd had this bad run of things a few years ago and was feeling really bad and, uh, to put it mildly, and I just had this thought kind of out of nowhere that had happened to me a couple other times when I'd been, I mean, I'm, I'm bipolar, like I'm, you know, I am well medicated and therapized, but I do have these depressive episodes at times. And um, I had this period where I was like, what if I went to shul? Like, would that help me figure out something? You know, and it's, it's kind of ineffable. It's a little hard to describe, but part of it was I wanted to be a good person. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to get into details of what had happened, but there was a lot of regret involved in what had happened and a lot of feeling like, I wish I knew how to move forward as a human being and like be better to people around me. And so I thought, why not? You know, there was a, there's a shul near me, a conservative shul uh, near where I live. So I started going there and it was really nice, but the, it, it wasn't the right community for me. It was, it, it was a pretty much on the older side. I mean, unfortunately, it's sort of the story of conservative Judaism in America right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's an older crowd. It's small. Uh, it's kind of low energy, but they're, they're wonderful people. Um, and it was a great way to sort of ease in. And then I was going to a reform shul, but um, wasn't quite the right place. I was definitely the youngest person who was going to the Saturday services. And then um, I really lucked out because I found this wonderful Jewish community um, called Base Base Hillel. I don't know if you've heard of them. There's mm -hmm. one in. Um, so they're they're uh, this wonderful group. It's got stations in the U.S. and Europe, but it started here in New York. Um, it's basically you have uh, a leader, usually a rabbi, of like a, a unit. So like there's Base Brooklyn, Base Manhattan. There's three bases in Chicago. There's a base in Berlin. Like there's bases all over the place. And you have like a leader who's usually a rabbi who has meetings of this group at his or her house. And the, it's everything from like Torah study to, you know, people who are thinking of converting, having sort of Judaism 101 to doing the Chagim, like doing the whole bit um, without regular weekly services. But um, I started going to that and stopped going to weekly services mostly, but was really engaging with base. I mean, I was going for Parsha study every week and, you know, going all the holidays and going to Shabbat dinners and really getting involved. And then my rabbi from base, a wonderful guy named John Leaner, he got a gig earlier this year as the rabbi, the pulpit rabbi for um, a modern Orthodox shul in, uh, in Brooklyn. That's not super far away from me. And I do not identify as Orthodox. I okay. feel like that would be not through any disdain, but just it would be lying about myself. And I don't want to uh, demean what it means to be Orthodox because that's something that I hold really precious and admire people for doing. And that's not what I do as of yet. But I really love being in modern Orthodox spaces. I, I have found that that's where I derive the most meaning more than being in a reform or a conservative or, you know, a Hasidic space, uh, like a Chabad type space. Mostly I feel really comfortable in modern Orthodox settings, especially sort of like left liberal modern orthodox circles which my shul definitely is mm. um you know like being welcoming for lgbtq people and you know um being uh, you know varying degrees of gender uh progressive you know like i i'm i don't love mechitza but um it's you know sometimes the mechitza is there and sometimes it's barely a presence um you know What's so mechitza? anyway a mechitza? Yeah. A mechitza is the divider between men oh, and women in it. Orthodox uh, synagogues. Yes. Okay. Um, so um, uh, anyway, blah, blah, blah. I, I, to answer your question, it was, I was having a rough go of it and had this thought and then kind of started wading in in the shallow end and eventually have not exactly plunged into the deep end, but I'm definitely like swimming you know mm -hmm. and it's it's um it's wonderful i mean i i have it's the first time i've really felt like i'm a part of a community community like mm -hmm. something big and larger that you know much larger than myself and um something that i can feel really welcomed in and feel like i'm in touch with my family and my background and who i am and um just to meet 
people. You know, I, I mm-hmm. had a birthday party last night and this is how my, this is how bizarre my life has become. Like if you had told me three years ago that I'd be having a birthday party where like half of the attendees would be people that I met either at shul or in a Jewish nonprofit setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that, um, on top of that, I would have like a rabbi at the party and it was like a Chabad rabbi, like a guy I know. And it was like, what, if you told me all that three years ago, I would have been, I wouldn't have even known how to begin asking you questions. It makes no sense. Like it was not a presence for me, uh, three years ago, but like, since then it's become something very important and um i'm just really lucky that this was you know not to use a a politicized word but that this has been my birthright you know this is Mm -hmm. something that now you astute listeners may know may have noticed that i said my mother was not born jewish so in the reform tradition i'm considered jewish because two years before i was born the reform movement decided that uh, patrilineal judaism counts um, but, uh, for every other, um, denomination or whatever you want to call it, movement, whatever, um, uh, if your mother is not Jewish, you're not Jewish. And because my mom was converted under reform auspices that, um, you know, those don't count for other denominations. So, uh, last year, just to kind of get my paperwork in order, I converted. Um, so I am not living the most halakhic life. So sometimes I feel a little weird about that but in order to like just be recognized as a jew my rabbi who is modern orthodox um he and a couple of other modern orthodox rabbis um were the bait dean for me and i went to the mikvah and we saw the moil the less said about that but the better um and uh it was uh, a really meaningful experience that was sort of the moment of like becoming born again was like going to the mikvah and coming out and being like, this is something that means a lot to me and that I have a responsibility to, you know, pursue and persist in. And it's just great. I'm really, really glad and lucky that um, I've been able to find a place in the Jewish community so far. So anyway, that's my my sappy answer to your question. Yeah, I was going to ask about um, your conversion day because I saw it on Instagram. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very modern sentence, I just realized. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but how did you feel the next day after you had done the conversion ritual? Um, the next day, oh God, that's a great question. I didn't feel different, but it was more about the experience of the day of, you know, the mm-hmm. day after I kind of went back to business. Um, but that day I like took the day off of work and, um, you know, it was sort of a personal holiday and it was really great. I, went to the mikvah to do the quick visit with the moil and then there was a long gap between when the moil was available and when one of the actual um you know when it was ready for me to dip and oh for a few hours i just went to fairway which new yorkers will recognize as a classic jewish spot i was on the upper west side Uh, i went to fairway which is a grocery store that has a cafe above it I ate at the cafe um, and read a Philip Roth novel. <laughs> for this is the Ju- most Jewish day ever. Yeah, it was the very Jewish. I figured, why not? Let's go for it. So I read a Roth novel um, while eating. I think it was like challah French toast at um, this uh, at Fairway, and then went to the mikvah. And the most meaningful part was, and this is going to make me sound really sappy and earnest. I read a passage from uh that jonathan Sachs, rabbi jonathan Sachs, had written i have my problems with Sachs, but when it comes to spiritual stuff i think he's really on the money a lot of the time and he'd written something in his book radical then radical now which was published in the u.s as a, a letter in the scroll um about i don't have the book right in front of me i could run get it but basically it's a quote about how you know he feels like he has no right to not continue the Jewish tradition, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how I felt. I was like, it's a true privilege and honor to be born with any part of this and to be raised in any part of this. And who am I to say, well, I'm going to let it die out, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not very halachic, but I spend a lot of time trying to learn um, and in my own way, practice Judaism. And it's something that I hope to leave to my children Mm -hmm. and to around me it's something that i just feel like i don't have a responsibility i don't have a right rather to let it you know die on my in my line you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and in my life 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. Is there any- Yeah, well, I'm glad. None of this is like, you know, scandalous. I'm happy to talk about it with anybody. Just nobody ever asks me. I'm hoping when this book comes out, you know, not to sound like too much of a crass careerist, but my big goal is like, sure, the geek circuit, I'll be going to Comic-Cons and all of that. But like the real place to be, I want to get on that Jewish book circuit. I want to be going to to Hillel's. I want to be going to JCC's. I want to be doing book events. Um, You know, I want to be at Shavuot, like whatever. You, you, you tell me where to go in the Jewish world. I'm going to do it. Cause let me say, uh, not to essentialize an entire people, but Jews known for buying books. They love books. People love the book, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. People of the book, let's hope it's my book. But um, anyway, uh, well, thank you so much for having me. This was a real delight. If people want to follow me or yes. find anything out about me, um, they can go to my website, which is abrahamreisman.com, and you can find everything. It's the hub for all things Reisman. Please sign up for my newsletter. I just started the newsletter, and it's, I think, going to be really good. Uh, we just published my first thing, which was an interview with Michael Shabon. And uh, it's an exciting thing to read. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Uh, AbrahamReisman.com is your hub for all things Abraham Reisman. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. This and was I really great. hope we good can luck. talk again soon. Please, and good luck with the podcast. It's, uh, it's good that you're doing it. Okay, talk to you Excellent. later. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with music by The Rondo Brothers. If you like the show, you could support us by sharing it with a friend or by adding a review to your favorite podcast app. That'll make sure that other listeners can find us. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks. And to hear more episodes, read transcripts, or learn more about the people or media we mentioned, visit our website, onwandering.co. Take care and see you next time.